Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. For the first time in 2022, we got to see Novak Djokovic on a hardcore face-top competition. What did it look like? It looked like two Djokovic wins. One of them sort of complicated with the Medvedev retirement, uh, but that is uh, going to be the focus of the show, breaking down what we saw against Medvedev before the injury and uh, the final against Tsitsipas. But you did have uh, Fritz and Tiafo, a couple of Americans who have had great years in a final um, of a 500 in Tokyo. Taylor Fritz winning in two tie breaks. I'll have some words on that towards the end of the show. I normally focus on the final. I thought this was one of those weeks. The semifinal was a lot more interesting. Djokovic versus Medvedev. Um, I'll say I feel much better. And this was my biggest takeaway. Despite feeling, you know, besides for feeling robbed because it would have been great to see a third set. Medvedev retiring after the second set tiebreak. And I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, besides for feeling robbed... I feel much better about Daniil Medvedev's 2023 after seeing that match. Best he's played since Australia, to my eyes. Uh, it was really good stuff from Daniil, and uh, he very, very nearly won it. Um, made some great matchup-specific adjustments as well. And this Djokovic-Medvedev rivalry, because I've been so locked in, for every single match because they've played so many big matches. It's been so incredible to see the evolution of the tactics and the kind of call-response nature that this rivalry has taken on. And uh, Novak won the last one in Paris. It was really interesting to see some new wrinkles to Daniil Medvedev's game plan um, in this one, which I'll break down. Uh, but first, let's talk about retirement. So, Second set tie break, Medvedev won the first set, and Daniil said after the match that he hurt himself at one love. I didn't visibly see anything on that point, uh, but before the point at 3-1, Medvedev looked to his coaching box and kind of, I think, told them that he was in big trouble, that, that he was hurt. And then this point at 3-1 was pretty obvious. Uh, with with Medvedev's movement, you know he comes out to a forehand and and uh, hits it on the run here, and you could see after he hit this forehand, there was no recovery to the middle. Uh, you can just see on this screenshot if you're watching on YouTube how unathletic he looks um, at this very moment. 
um, just not really getting out of that corner, and then very, very slow to cover this uh, forehand down the line by Djokovic. Uh, he does get there. And then later in the point, uh, Novak hits a drop shot, and Medvedev does not go for it. And if you were watching the match, you know that Medvedev was running down, at least attempting to run down almost every Novak drop shot on the backhand side, uh, which was a lot of them. Um, so he looked completely off on this 3-1 point. And then for the rest of the tie break, he did everything he could to avoid moving. He hit like three, four backhand drop shots pretty much every time he w had a chance to step into a backhand. He had a drop shot, um, hit some big forehands as well. He has the first serve to try to finish points quickly with. Um, he, he made a couple of runs where he looked, you know, like he was making that final push or, or maybe looking okay. But for the most part, there were clear and obvious signs that Daniil Medvedev had hurt himself. Now, if you were, you know, focused on the ball more so than Medvedev, if you weren't watching as carefully and you didn't notice that really kind of 180 that Medvedev did tactically, then I completely understand being caught off guard by the retirement and feeling, again, surprised and... I guess dubious, but here's here's the thing. Even if Medvedev hadn't been showing obvious signs that he had hurt himself, here is a competitive player. There's no history of Daniil Medvedev being uncompetitive on the tennis court. The man puts a lot of effort in and cares deeply about winning tennis matches. There are a couple players that you can't say that about. And if those players were in the same situation, then maybe you could you could cast some doubt on a retirement like this. But here is a competitive player who had been really close to winning the match a few moments ago and was about to start a third set. So the score was tied, one set apiece. How could you doubt that... How could you doubt in that situation that Daniil Medvedev couldn't play anymore. How could you doubt that he felt something in his abductor, which is what he said after the match, or his hamstring, whatever it was, I'm a little bit unclear, um, that was scary and was definitive uh, that he couldn't play, that he felt something pull, that he felt something twinge. I mean, I thought the fact that Daniil took any heat about this retirement was uh, absolutely wrong. A competitive player retired with the match still in question, that should tell you all you need to know. And the signs were there before then. So get out of here with, uh, uh, you know, Medvedev kind of tapped out, that he pulled the plug too early, that he should have called for the trainer. Um, I, I know that most players kind of do that for you know, optics sometimes maybe, but look, Daniil knew he couldn't go anymore. So uh, I think it was absolutely wrong that he took heat for it. Uh, Djokovic's reaction was interesting though. Novak, Novak looked upset. Novak looked like he wanted to keep playing. And this just shows how little the result meant to Djokovic. Hear me out. I know that sounds a little weird. What this showed to me is what Djokovic cared about was not advancing to the final, 
But what Djokovic cared about was outplaying and beating Daniil Medvedev. That's what he wanted. That's the competitor that Novak Djokovic is. He didn't want to just be the victor. He wanted to win. And he was upset um, because he felt that he hadn't actually destroyed or defeated Daniil Medvedev, which he, he in fairness, he hadn't. Um, Novak thought that he kind of got outplayed in both sets, found a way to win the second. And I think he wanted a chance in the third set, an opportunity to start to outplay Daniil Medvedev. So he was upset, which just shows what a competitor Novak is. Because he didn't care about, you know, getting to the final. He wanted to win. He wanted to defeat Daniil Medvedev. It was interesting. All right, let's talk about uh, the match tactically. First thing I want to address here. This was their first meeting since the Paris Masters last year. And that match, if you will recall, is the match where Djokovic served volleyed on every point on the deuce side, slice serve out wide, came in behind it. Super, super effective in that match. Basically took over. Huge reason he won it. Novak won it. So let's just continue that thread, right? Djokovic serving volley. Not nearly as much in this match. He used it as a changeup, and he used it when Medvedev drifted back on the deuce side. But for the most part, Daniil was standing further up to try to deter it. When Novak used it, it was still highly effective, but you know, I think maybe he lost one point on it. I thought he won maybe five to eight points on it. And I'll say four to eight points on it. Uh, so I, th I still think it was highly effective, but Medvedev deterred. Uh, Medvedev used his return position to kind of detract from that tactic. Uh, so good job by Daniil, uh, but it wasn't as big a factor in this match. So we can kind of toss that aside. I do think that it's still something that Djokovic feels like he can go to on a big point against Medvedev on the deuce side. Still something that I think he will go to on a big point, but he didn't come into this match. He clearly, you know, he knew that Daniil would have that in his mind. He didn't have the element of surprise. He probably has seen that Medvedev at the U.S. Open has kind of moved up uh, his return position to try to take away from the serve and volley. So uh, Djokovic just came into the match. I think he, he didn't really want to, he didn't feel like that was the best way to go. So he used it sometimes, but he did he did use it effectively. So it is still a factor. What this was, though, was certainly a continuation of Djokovic's proactive shot selection against Medvedev. Constant breaking of rally patterns, breaking neutrality, changing things up. I think Djokovic would rather miss than grind. He does not think that grinding against Medvedev, that playing uh, physical rallies against Medvedev is a good path to victory. So uh, what you'll actually see from Novak in this matchup, and this has been true ever since the 2021 Australian Open final. Um, Novak is doing very little cross-court trading. Because if he's going to hit... You know, a lot of, if he's going to do a lot of cross-court trading, Daniil is going to do that right back and it's going to get very, very physical. He knows, Novak knows he cannot rely on Medvedev to miss. 
There's not going to be errors. So uh, Djokovic doesn't want to play that game, and he wants to make a lot happen. And this comes at the cost of consistency. It's not... I think what we need to get kind of out of uh, out of our heads, it's it's not that it's a, a, a good tactic for Djokovic. It's not that it's a bad tactic for Djokovic. It is just a tactic. And there are good parts about it, and there are bad parts about it. And it's just about how a given match plays out. Um, in the first set, I think it's hardest to do it in the first set uh, because Medvedev is, is fresh and... And he's able to do a lot of scrambling. He has a lot of quickness. And with Djokovic just seeking finishes very proactively, it's it's harder to do that when Medvedev is fully fresh at the beginning of a match. Uh, so maybe that is why in the first set, uh, Medvedev was able to win the, win the set without doing anything special offensively. Uh, Djokovic got his serve broken twice. The first time he made, you know, three mistakes on the front court, two volleys and an approach shot. And in the second game, Djokovic just forced a couple of drop shots and missed a couple of attacking ground strokes. He's trying to force it. He's looking for finishes. He does not want this to get physical. And then uh, Medvedev, when he had an advantage in the... uh, in the in the first set, when he went up that break at four three and then at five four, uh, his serve really took over in his final two service games of the first set, and I just haven't seen that as often this year. So it was nice to see. And all in all, Medvedev's serve looked back. It looked like it was back to what we know it can be, which is one of the best serves in the game. Another huge adjustment that Daniil made in response to what Djokovic was doing. So Novak wanted, Novak didn't want it to get physical. Uh, Medvedev decided, okay, if you want to play really aggressively, if you don't want to rally, then you're going to have to hit backhands. Because from the back of the court, when Djokovic is looking to do a lot of damage, he can drive through his forehand and hurt Medvedev quite easily. He can't do that on his backhand. Daniil knows that Novak's backhand isn't big enough, and by the way, almost nobody's backhand is big enough, to finish from behind the baseline when Medvedev's in decent defensive position. It's just not big enough. So Medvedev really peppered Djokovic's backhand. And you know he's going to go cross-court. You know Medvedev's going to hit his backhand cross-court you know, 70% of the time. And that's kind of normal, you know, just trading cross-court with the backhand. What was pretty abnormal and something you should definitely watch out for when these guys play in the future is Medvedev's not hitting his forehand cross-court. He's going down the line with his forehand because he does not want to give Djokovic an opportunity to be aggressive on his forehand. Uh, He wants to make make him create with his backhand. Create offense with your backhand. Not going to let you do it off your forehand. And in order for Djokovic to create with his backhand, um, he kind of needs to hit drop shots. He needs to push Medvedev back with depth uh, and weight of shot. And then once he pushes Medvedev back, now he can get the short ball. He can hit the drop shot. But that's kind of what needs to be done. It's a lot less straightforward. 
I think uh, on the forehand, Djokovic with with the power he can generate off of his forehand, he doesn't need to uh, he doesn't need to rely on those kind of intricate uh, combinations of power and finesse. He can kind of just lean on the power. It's a little bit easier. So uh, I think that was really smart by Medvedev in terms of his baseline patterns, just taking his forehand down the line, not going cross court, forcing Djokovic to finish with his backhand. Uh, but ultimately, we didn't really get to see what you know how things would have played out had Medvedev not been injured. Uh, Djokovic in in the second set, I mean, he was uh, he was excellent, and and Medvedev was excellent as well. The quality was super high, and um, then in the tiebreak, Medvedev had to completely change his tactic from being super patient, never missing. Uh, backhands cross court every time, just very safe but very deep and unattackable. Um, he started really trying to force the issue because he was injured. So uh, unfortunate, but ultimately I think Medvedev did made made a lot of good adjustments and and served the best he has in a while. Moved incredibly well, best he's moved in a while. It looked like the Medvedev of old. So you feel much better about about Daniil. Even if he's going to be injured, maybe he's out for the rest of the year. I don't know. Uh, and and one thing is for sure, after a result like this, it's just not Medvedev's year, huh? I mean, it's just not his year. Everything is going wrong for him. But in terms of the level that he played, really, really positive. And, and Djokovic was right there. Uh, who knows what would have happened in the third set. You know, the one thing Novak did really well. Um, and I'm going to end it on this and then turn the page to the final. The one thing Novak did really well was force Medvedev to move a ton. I mean, really pressure Daniil's movement. I mean, there was a lot of uh, physical stress that Daniil was put under in this match. Uh, I can't credit, you know, Novak for Daniil... Uh, sustaining an acute injury in this match. I, I can't. I, I know some are going to do that. I really can't go there because uh, that's just Daniil's style. And we've discussed that. I've, you know, we've covered that on this channel. Daniil's going to run a ton. That's just going to be his game, uh, especially on the return game because the offensive weapon is the first serve. But other after that, you know, other than that, he's going to be having to scramble a ton. Uh, but I do think that Djokovic, with the execution on his drop shot, which is exceptional, um, pairing that with with the lob, um, forcing Medvedev to hit difficult volleys. Daniil not being awesome in the front court. He's not great. He was all right in this match, but he's not great. Uh, that That is a, a situation that Djokovic, I, I think he feels pretty good about himself. And I think that the way Djokovic is dictating terms, I think that he's confident over the course of a match, it begins to favor him more and more and more because Medvedev uh, will have broken down. Let's go on to this final. Um, Djokovic-Tsitsipas. Now, this match, unlike the Medvedev match, which felt really, you know, close, and it was an awesome level, this match didn't feel close at all. So let me just say, you know, one thing I really admire about Novak um, from these two matches, in fact, in awe of Djokovic in, in this respect, the ability to understand your opponent and play a certain way accordingly and keep that tactical focus and that presence of mind throughout is 
absolutely incredible. Um, you know, tennis players, they have, you know, comfortable play styles. They have a lot of habits on court, and it's hard to break those habits. And especially when there's pressure, you start to do what's most comfortable. But here we see Djokovic play two matches back-to-back against top players in Medvedev and Tsitsipas and play a completely different way in both matches. And, you know, not he didn't just start the match differently. Uh, every point in and point out, he had a consistent approach against these two players, but it was a, it was a different approach. Against Medvedev, he doesn't feel like he has an advantage in consistency or shot tolerance. He doesn't want it to be physical. He doesn't want it to grind. Against Tsitsipas, none of that is true. None of that is true. He feels like he's the more consistent player. He he wants to, to drag out rallies because I feel like there are two factors here. He is the steadier player, Novak is. He has better focus. He has better shot tolerance. And... The more they play in neutral, the more backhands Tsitsipas needs to hit. And Djokovic knows that if he makes Stefanos hit backhands, he is going to get errors and he's going to get balls to attack. And I mean, look, that's the complete opposite. Against Medvedev, you're going to get nothing to attack because his depth is just absurd. Every every backhand that Medvedev hit hits is deep. And, and it never misses. So we're not going to make any progress, right? You have to try to, you have to try to be aggressive, make Medvedev defend, make him come forward in uncomfortable positions, mix in the slice, uh, change directions constantly, force him back, uh, hit, you know, use angles to open up the court. You have to do all these things. Against Tsitsipas, no, you don't. Uh, just because if, if you're trading backhands with him, you're in good shape. Djokovic is. Not everyone. Djokovic is in good shape. So, you know, Tsitsipas, he has trouble kind of protecting his backhand. And then he feels like he needs to do a ton on his forehand. And he's inconsistent on his forehand because he's trying to do too much. Because he's very desperate when he has forehands. At least this is the sense I get. He's very desperate to take full control of the point and to not have to hit a backhand, right? Ever, you know, for the remainder of the point. And that's kind of a problem because you're facing a guy in Djokovic who is elite defensively. And if you are anxious to finish against that guy, um, you're probably going to miss because it's not going to happen. It's going to take patience. It's going to take... A lot of variety and skill, and it might take three or four shots in combination to to finish against Novak Djokovic. And it f- just feels like Tsitsipas is trying to hit through him with his forehand and missing as a result, overpressing as a result. And we know that on the backhand there are issues. So Djokovic was machine-like. He never missed in this match. He lost just six points on serve. The return is still an issue for Tsitsipas. Uh, one improvement from Tel Aviv. I talked about how Djokovic got pretty tense against both Safiulin and Chilich. There wasn't even a hint of tension in Djokovic's game at any point. So you could see he's getting more match tough. And 
Djokovic played way cleaner. So unforced errors, Tsitsipas made 25, Djokovic made 7. Novak lost just 6 points on serve in this match, which kind of goes back to me feeling like it wasn't a close match because Novak was never under pressure on his serve. Um, I do want to kind of show you an example of Tsitsipas not really being able to hang backhand to backhand. Uh, here's a really important point, and we saw a lot of this. Here's a really important point. It's deuce. It's 5-4. Djokovic is serving it out. Tsitsipas got a little bit lucky on the previous point. He got a net cord return winner. Uh, but here is a backhand trade by Djokovic cross court. Uh, good pace on this ball. Uh, pulls Tsitsipas outside the single sideline. When you're outside the single sideline, you know you're not really going to be able to recover to the middle. So you have to try to hit an unattackable trade here. The key on any unattackable trade is going to be the depth. Uh, I highlighted the kind of area in the court where Tsitsipas would have been safe here. You know, Tsitsipas hits this backhand in the highlighted region of the court, which if you're listening on a podcast is, you know, three two to three feet beyond the service line. Djokovic probably just needs to trade this back cross court, or if he goes down the line, he is not going to be able to measure it or hit it as hard. But this this backhand cross court is too short and too attackable. So Novak leans into it, go, changes down the line, and he pinpoints this literally on both lines, the sideline and the baseline for a clean winner. We saw a lot of this, but that that's an example. Tsitsipas just can't hang backhand to backhand at all. But um, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that stood out to me in this final was Tsitsipas still being held back in the mental game. Thought Djokovic was an absolute killer in this match. The focus was so sharp and emotionally he was... Uh, very positive and, again, uh, like a killer. Fought like an animal for every point. Unbelievably present. Never went away. Never had a lapse. Just an A-plus mental performance from Djokovic in this final. For Tsitsipas, it was more of the same. I, I feel like a part of me, and this has happened to players in the past, a part of me, you know, I feel like I'm being too negative because he's had some big he's had some good wins. He's had some big wins. He beat Rublev in the semifinal. That was a good win. He competed hard. He competed well. Uh, but the last two times I've covered Tsitsipas um, at length, it was the Cincinnati final uh, against Borna Cioric where I had the same kind of critique. And now I'm going to have, once again, in this final in Astana, the same critique which is Tsitsipas not handling adversity well. The word is resilience. The word is resilience that I'm not seeing for Tsitsipas. When bad stuff happens, how do you respond? I'm not seeing Tsitsipas respond well to bad stuff happening. And the example are the two times his serve was broken in this match. That was the match. One break of serve in the first set, one break of serve in the second set. That was it. By the way, you know, Tsitsipas indoors with his first serve, his forehand, his transition game. I really like the, you know, his serve plus one game. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was on point. 
And that was all good. Did I like the way he was playing in rallies? No. I think he's got to be more patient. I think he's got to be willing to grind more. He's got to be. He's got to ultimately be more consistent on his forehand, and he has to protect his backhand better. But he was able to hold serve often because he served pretty well. His attacking forehand is still lethal. Um, his serve plus one game is still lethal. So he was able to hold serve for the most part. But here were the two times that he did not hold serve. First time, they play a really, really long rally. Really long rally. This was in the first set. First point of the match. And um, surely, Novak's legs start to feel tired. Tsitsipas's legs start to feel tired. It's one of those points where uh, you're, you're, you're hurting physically. And you're, you know, even, and the cardio is starting to go. And Tsitsipas played uh, a good point and just couldn't find a way through. Djokovic goes to the drop shot here, and Tsitsipas does not run it down. That was tapping out. You know, that was throwing in the towel to me. It was a drop shot that Tsitsipas probably should have at least run down. And I think Tsitsipas felt pretty demoralized. Like, I just played this great point. I played 25 balls or more. I don't know exactly how long it was. And... This guy just, this guy was just such a wall, such a machine. I couldn't get anything done here. And then he's going to hit that drop shot. And it, it was just a very demoralizing first point. Be and that is a, an argument against the analytics, by the way. Uh, there's, you know, a big movement in tennis for, for prioritizing the zero through four shot rallies, right? Which uh, I certainly think that there's a ton of truth to it. You know, the majority of points in a tennis match are short points and there's been a lot of discussion about that. But when you lose a 30-shot rally, that doesn't feel the same mentally, emotionally as losing a three-shot rally. It feels completely different. And longest rally of the match, Djokovic hits a drop shot. Tsitsipas doesn't even go for it. And he he should have. You know, I, He should have reacted. It was not a great drop shot. It was all right. It was an average, decent drop shot. And at the end of the day, Tsitsipas just felt too tired. So watching the match, I thought, okay, this is this is interesting. How is Stefanos going to respond to playing a really good first point and still losing it? That was a really tough blow. A tough way to lose the first point. How's he going to respond? He makes three forehand unforced errors to get his serve broken. Three bad forehands doesn't respond well. And the same thing happens in the second set. This is the first point in the two-all game. Djokovic is way stretched out here after a great cross-court forehand by Tsitsipas. Now Tsitsipas has a great forehand to attack. He's inside the baseline. He's going to lean into this one. And Djokovic with great anticipation here. You see Novak... Uh, running to the deuce side, split-stepping on the deuce side, anticipating the inside-in forehand. And that's where Tsitsipas goes. Look, if Steph went inside out, he would have won the point. But he goes inside in. And Djokovic is able to defend it and play an extra ball. Here's it again. Djokovic is in the deuce corner, and Tsitsipas wants to go behind him. But look what happens. Novak stays again. So same situation. Attackable forehand by Tsitsipas. If he goes down the line, he wins the point. Ah, he goes cross. 
he goes cross. And he actually just misses this one in the net. But what happens oftentimes is uh, you see in the corner of your eye that your opponent is waiting for you where you're about to hit the ball, and that can force you to miss, which is why I think Tsitsipas missed this forehand. Frustrating. Really frustrating. Tough way to lose the first point of that service game. What does he do? He looks to his to his box. He looks to his box, and he, he goes 10 seconds, 10 seconds just yelling about losing that first point. All right, how are you going to respond to a really sucky way to lose the first point? Of, of your service game where you had you hit two great forehands and Novak defended both of them and then you had a third one to attack and you missed it and you kept hitting it exactly where Novak was anticipating uh, Shank forehand error on the next point um, serve and volley which was a great return by Djokovic but uh, serve and volley it's really tough to serve and volley against Novak. Probably just not a smart play. But, you know, I'll give Tsitsipas a pass for that one. And then, uh, first ball, backhand, drop shot, unforced error. Return was short by Novak. Not a, not a good unforced error. You know, return was short. You have a ball to attack. Missed the drop shot. Um, probably should have just ripped the backhand. If you're going to drop shot, don't miss. Um, so... The thing is with Tsitsipas in these games is you felt the break coming on both on both these occasions. As I'm watching the match, I felt both times coming because I thought, "Ooh, that's a tough that's a tough first point." You have to be resilient. You have to turn the page. And instead of turning the page, Tsitsipas made forehand unforced errors because in my opinion, The disappointment and frustration of what happened on those opening points lingered. And that's what I've been seeing at Pass recently in these big matches. Lingering effects. Fritz Tiafo, just a couple of words. Uh, it's kind of funny. Tiafo won 13 tie breaks in a row, and then he loses the final 6-7-6-7. It's kind of funny. Um, but Fritz, he's now 8 in the world. He's seventh in the race. And let's not forget, he's had two significant injuries. Both of them, his foot. He, he missed uh, Madrid and Rome. Came back. Wasn't really ready to play Roland Garros. Then after Wimbledon, um, he... After Wimbledon, he was in a walking boot for like three weeks wasn't really ready to compete well in DC uh, or or Canada, um, but but you know that that was a well timed injury. So it was really the fact that he's missed those two clay court masters. Uh, yes, he's not so comfortable on clay. Um, so you know how well would he have really done? That is up for debate. Uh, then you look at uh, his Wimbledon run. You know it's pretty much him and Sinner and Novak. Those are the three guys that were hurt by Wimbledon not having points. Um, so all of these things have gone against Fritz, yet he's still now uh, seventh in the race, eight in the world. Uh, it is a reflection of how well he's played all year. I, I do feel like, like I was on this from the start in January in Australia. I said, look, Fritz, 
that's a top 10 level out of Fritz. Uh, he's playing like a top tenner. I think that's been true all year long. So uh, his ranking now just reflects that. Uh, Tiafo in this final, he wasn't really getting in. That's the one thing that I kind of took away from it. Tiafo wasn't really able to get in, and that is what he needs to do. That's what he's been doing. So it was weird to see him so passive positionally. You also got to credit, though, the depth and the weight of shot that Fritz brings to the table, especially on the backhand side. His depth is incredible. Uh, it is difficult to find opportunities to to come forward when um, when someone is operating uh, with such great length off the ground. I'm impressed overall with Tiafo, you know, generally speaking with him, that he hasn't had a letdown. I thought that was a, a major possibility. Really pleasantly... I don't want to say pleasantly surprised because I, I wasn't I wasn't like saying he was going to have a letdown, but I, I certainly wouldn't have been surprised. Um, so let's just say that I am impressed that he hasn't had a letdown after all of the fanfare and the uh, the emotion that came with the U.S. Open run and, and even Labor Cup uh, thrust into the spotlight in some of the biggest matches of his career in terms of the attention and the gravitas uh, from the doubles match to... Um, um, winning it for Team World, I, I'm I'm impressed that there was no letdown here. So uh, between Fritz and Tiafo, there's a real question now for who's going to finish 2023 as the top ranked American. Isn't that isn't that a good question at this point? It was pretty clear coming into this year that Fritz was in the best position that he was the that he was the alpha, you know as as Isner has fallen off, Opelka, um, I know, you know, he's had such a quiet season that, you know, it's almost difficult to remember this, but Opelka was honestly probably the other guy here that, that you may have came into 2022 uh, considering, you know, considering that maybe he was about to make a leap and he was going to be the top ranked American. You know, he was just outside the top 20, if my memory serves, when the season started, uh, right around where Fritz was. Uh, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. He's been up and down, you know, mentally in terms of his consistency, uh, which is why I wasn't all that confident in him, but the ability is there. Uh, he had hip surgery, by the way, for anyone who's wondering uh, what ha has happened with uh, Opelka. Um, that's why he's out. I'm not sure when he's coming back sometime next year. Hopefully, he'll be ready to go for January. I'm not sure, though. Um, at this point, it's really Tiafo. You know, with him shoring up the forehand, improving his match management, his focus, improving his fitness and his professionalism off court in terms of his recovery, in terms of his diet and, and all the things he does uh, keeping himself in the best shape possible. You know, all of these small improvements that he's made that have added up to what we've seen in the latter half of this year. You know, now it's probably between Fritz and Francis, and I still have the same feeling on this. I think that Fritz is pretty close to his ceiling. I don't see that much that Fritz can do better. Uh, maybe he gets a good front court game. That would be incredible. I'm just not quite holding my breath. You know, that's clearly the thing in Fritz's game that can take him to the next level, is if he gets comfortable in the front court, it will take him to the next level. Uh, it's that, and it's just 
the nerve management. I mean, look, you think about all of the matches that all of the big wins that he's left on the table over the last couple years. Uh, Djokovic with the torn ab, Nadal with the torn ab. Novak was a Australian Open match. Nadal Wimbledon this year. Um, um, and then what? what's the most recent one? I feel like there was another one uh, more recently. Uh, it just feels like the uh, <clears throat> there have been some some 50-50 matches where Fritz has let his nerves get the better of him. So I think that in the front court game. But other than that, Fritz is looking so polished. He's starting to move really, really well. He now goes after his forehand, which I've covered. I mean, the forehand is phenomenal. The backhand is phenomenal. He is such a good power baseliner, such a balanced power baseliner. What Tiafo has going for him is he's a better athlete and he has more shots. You know, he just... He he has a bigger toolbox. He is a fantastic volleyer. He has great feel, great touch. He'll he'll mix it up. He has a ton of variety. The fact that it's is it going to be Francis or, or Fritz, which I think is where that conversation is at. Uh, Tiafo should feel really really good about that. All right, um, moving on to next week. Nothing actually, I, I don't know. It's the week before Paris. Um, it's it's kind of a, it feels like a week where the WTA is going to actually be a bigger deal than the ATP. San Diego is absolutely stacked. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what we got. Um, I'm planning on doing a mailbag on Friday. So um, hopefully I will talk to you guys then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.